Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. Ghostthropology presents discussion of ghost stories and beliefs, and how we share ghost folklore, and importantly, how belief in the supernatural reflects who we are. While I don't know when or where or how you are listening, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 42, The Slender Man. You were safer when you didn't know about him, because once you know about him, he knows about you. It doesn't matter what time of day or night it is. It doesn't matter where you are. The Slender Man will find you. By listening to this episode, you are making yourself stand out to the Slender Man, and that is something that you do not want. The Slender Man is tall, somewhere between 7 and 14 feet, and can maybe change his size at will. His arms are long, and sometimes he is reported to have tentacles coming out of his back or his sides. He is always immaculately dressed in a black suit. His skin is pale, possibly bleached white or gray, and on the front of his bald head, there is only a blank space where his face should be. Although sources have since surfaced suggesting the presence of Slenderman going back hundreds of years, the initial widely spread document is a photograph from 1983 in which a group of children, suspected to all be missing, are shown on a playground with a strange, tall figure in the background. The caption below the photo reads, We didn't want to go. We didn't want to kill them. But its persistent silence and outstretched arms horrified and comforted us at the same time. The person who took the photo is unknown, but the unknown figure who made the photo available to the world states that the photographer is presumed dead. The same source made available another photo from 1986, which also shows the strange figure near a group of children. This one with the caption, one of two recovered photographs from the Sterling City Library blaze notable for being taken on the day in which 14 children vanished and for what is referred to as the Slender Man. Deformities cited as film defects by officials. Fire at the library occurred one week later. Actual photograph confiscated as evidence. Since then, sightings have become more common, or at least more widely reported. Moreover, the characteristics of a Slender Man encounter have become better known. Slenderman can target anyone, including adults, but he favors children. Those who have been targeted by him experience nightmares, hallucinations, and increasing agitation and anxiety. Some people start experiencing physical symptoms as well, including headaches and, sometimes, a persistent cough. Slenderman will show up on film and video, provided that the images are gathered from a distance. Once they get too close, Electronics begin to malfunction, and anything gathered them becomes unreliable. The Slender Man can be encountered anywhere, at any time. Indeed, the earliest known photos of him appear to be at public parks during the day. But most encounters take place in woods near towns, at those transitional spaces between civilization and wilderness. He seems to favor places that are almost, but not quite, wild. 
but that doesn't stop him from appearing in the middle of a city. Those targeted by the Slender Man will eventually vanish. What becomes of them is unknown. Most say that he takes his victims away to feed on or torment them. Others, however, look at the fact that he primarily targets children and take that as evidence that he is rescuing victims from pain and abuse, acting as a sort of creepy savior of the hurt. When he does occasionally target adults, it must be as punishment to those who do harm. But most think that he is purely malevolent, with no altruistic aims at all. There are those who say that Slenderman began as a hoax, that the photographs and captions mentioned earlier were the product of a participant in the Something Awful web forums. But widespread belief in the Slenderman caused a thought form to come into existence, making the Slenderman real through sheer force of mass psychic will. Others hold that the Slenderman is as old as humanity, and that legends and writings throughout history attest to his continued existence. One thing is for certain, now that you know about him, he knows about you. Be sure to lock your doors and windows tonight. They won't keep the Slender Man out, but they may bring you a false sense of comfort. Commentary this is an episode that I've had in mind since first starting this podcast. Slender Man has been a presence in the world of the spooky folklore since 2009. And while his popularity has ebbed and flowed, he seems to be, for the time anyway, a constant presence in internet paranormal folklore. Now, as anyone who is in the know will tell you, and I suspect a few people were screaming at their audio players during the story section of this episode, the origin of Slender Man is very well known. The creature was created as part of a thread on the Something Awful forum in 2009. The purpose was to create a Photoshop image that would look like it was real scary folklore, but was actually completely invented by the person posting it. Eric Kunzen, using the screen name Victor Surge, clearly succeeded. Kunzen doctored two photographic images that appeared to date to the 1980s by adding a strange, tall creature that had many appendages and appeared to be wearing a business suit into the background. To these, he appended the captions that I quoted earlier, and an internet phenomenon was born. Slenderman proved popular with forum users and began to spread into the internet at large. The reason for its popularity is open to question, but a number of folklorists have commented on how aspects of the Slenderman story as it developed over time came to resemble actual legends, creating what is often called a folkloresque tale, a story that so sufficiently resembles actual folklore that it feels as if it should be an actual legend, but was in fact created specifically as fiction. A similar example is Dracula. The story of Dracula, as described by Bram Stoker, bears very little resemblance to actual Eastern European vampire lore, and no resemblance at all to Vlad Tepes, the historical Dracula. But because it is steeped both in elements of folklore with which Stoker was familiar, such as supernatural beings transforming into animals and evil spirits having difficulties due to water, and in things that, to the British public unfamiliar with Eastern Europe, at least sounded like the sort of thing they would expect from Eastern Europe, the story of Dracula became a prototypical vampire story in the English-speaking world. 
It is often taken by native English speakers to be representative of actual Eastern European vampire beliefs, even though it bears no actual resemblance to them. In the same way, Slender Man includes elements of actual folklore. He's a character that comes for children, like the Pied Piper and the Boogeyman. His motives are unknown and possibly unknowable, like many folkloric supernatural entities. He looks almost human, but not quite, like a fairy. He causes madness in those he haunts, also like a fairy, etc. Slender Man also has elements of late 20th, early 21st century popular ghost beliefs, such as how he messes with electronics when he is in their proximity. His story also borrows elements from pop culture that are so commonly recognized among his audience that they feel like they've always been there. He looks a bit like a Tim Burton character design. He has elements of aliens from pop culture, and his initial photographic appearance looks very much like something that Fox Mulder would hold up on an X-Files episode. The result is that, for younger members of Generation X and those younger still, Slender Man is both familiar and alien simultaneously, and therefore he feels like something that has always existed despite having clearly been created in 2009. Slender Man initially primarily populated a form of internet narrative known as creepypasta, horror stories posted in particular forums or online repositories that are known by the creators and the intended audience to be fiction, but are written in a manner intended to create a sense of reality, as if the story is, in fact, absolutely true. This has created an interesting situation. There are a lot of people online who are absolutely devoted to debunking claims that they believe to be false. And when they encounter people behaving as if Slender Man is real, these same debunkers often feel that this is easy to debunk and will gleefully show the truth of Slender Man's origins. The problem is they are usually trying to convince people who already know that Slender Man is fictional, but who have an agreement to pretend otherwise. It's rather like how when I was a kid in the 80s, a lot of very vocal groups tried to show wrestling fans that professional wrestling was scripted with predetermined outcomes. These truth-tellers would often become frustrated that the wrestling fans continued to go along with what was clearly fake. In wrestling, there is a term, kayfabe, that indicates an agreement between the wrestlers, the promoters, and their audience, where they all know that the match is a drama to be acted out. But so long as the wrestlers put on a good show, everyone will go along with it. So far from being fooled, the wrestling fans were in on the performance. They understood what was happening, and their suspension of disbelief was part of the fun. Much the same is true in the case of Slender Man. If you feel the need to debunk the story, there's a good chance that the person you were trying to persuade already knows it's fiction and is likely amused by you trying to sway them away from believing. So, as I go forward, I may occasionally talk about Slender Man believers, but understand that I am referring to those who claim to believe in Slender Man but they may actually be playing a game rather than stating an actual belief. There may be those who genuinely believe in this entity, and we'll get to examples where that appears to be true, but the fact that there is acknowledged play-acting of belief makes it difficult to determine if actual belief in Slenderman is at all widespread. As a creature of internet folklore, looking at the popularity of Slenderman as a search term tells us quite a lot. Looking at a Google Trends analysis, Slender Man first became a search term around 2009, after the character first appeared on Something Awful and peaked as a search term in the spring and summer of 2014. 
following a stabbing in Wisconsin that the assailants attributed to their devotion to Slenderman. More on that later. However, it had an earlier peak in the fall of 2012 following the release of the video game Slenderman The Eight Pages, with occasional peaks ever since. Though current daily searches are lower than they were prior to 2014, they remain consistent outside of the spikes, suggesting that Slenderman has remained an enduring part of internet folklore even after the early spikes in interest from the video game and the stabbing faded away. In a 2018 collection of essays titled Slenderman is Coming, social scientists, folklorists, and media scholars discuss why Slenderman caught on and retains a following. Throughout the volume, it is frequently brought up that, as previously mentioned, Slenderman has a folkloresque quality. Again, this means that while it was created on a known date by a known author, it has the feel of a story that has been around longer than anyone can remember. What's more, outside of his description, the specifics of Slenderman are always open to question. He's always pale and faceless, is always tall, and always wears a suit. Other than that, the details are open to change by the person telling a Slenderman story. Does he have arms, tentacles, or maybe both? Does he have extended limbs out of proportion with his body? Or is he proportionally correct, but just very tall and slim? Does he interfere with electronics working properly? Or can electronics be used to effectively capture his image or voice? Is he a single creature, or is he one of many identical entities? Is there only one type of Slenderman, or is there a variety? All of these details vary from telling to telling, and because they vary, it means that there is no set canon, which means that stories that are not very good can easily be ignored or dismissed by anybody who wishes to. In addition to having elements of folklore and popular culture melded together in his weird appearance, the Slender Man also looks symbolic, but also vague. This gives him the ability to be a stand-in for other worries that we have, in the same way as more standard folkloric creatures. As he always wears a suit, he may represent the duties of encroaching adulthood that are coming to take away you, the child or adolescent, and absorb you into a larger adult society in which you are just a cog. The same suit could represent adult concerns about those in positions of authority having their own agendas and being disinterested in your welfare willing to devour you for their own purpose. That Slender Man is usually associated with the disappearance of children brings to mind the stranger danger fears prevalent in the 1980s and 1990s, a fear also conjured by Stephen King's creation Pennywise. In some stories, Slender Man is actually a creepy savior, taking children from homes where they are abused or neglected. However, that this is placed within a larger context where Slender Man is malevolent means that these stories end up being ambiguous, even if their authors intend otherwise. In this interpretation of the story, this can be seen as reflecting our own view of the foster care system, where children are taken from abusive and neglectful homes and placed in the system where they might be saved or they might be even worse off than they were before. As a creature of the internet and one that knows about you as soon as you know about him, Slender Man is likewise analogous to the way that tech companies such as Google and Facebook convert all of their users into commodities to be preyed upon by those who wish to market to them or influence their thinking. Slender Man is essentially Cambridge Analytica, rendered in folklore form.
This folkloresque quality means both that the story is likely to resonate with some staying power, and also that it is harder for many to dismiss it as simply someone messing about on the internet. We tend to give respect to folklore and treat it as significant, even if we don't believe it. Something that feels like folklore may receive the same respect or some modicum of it anyway. I suspect that a lot of us are more comfortable with folkloresque tales such as Slenderman than we are with other creepypasta stories that strike us as being more juvenile. A story that doesn't seem to be accorded the same degree of respect is Jeff the Killer, which is the story of an adolescent serial killer with an absurd number of specific details that quickly become unintentionally silly. In fact, many online fictions depict Slenderman locked in Mortal Kombat with Jeff the Killer. But while Jeff the Killer is locked into details that are more at home in cheesy slasher films than actual folklore, Slenderman is not, and so Slenderman tales can easily detach themselves from the tall tale excess of a showdown with Jeff the Killer in a way that poor Jeff cannot manage. Slenderman, by virtue of being vague and hard to pin down in his otherworldliness, fits many contexts and can fill many niches. Whereas many creepypasta creations are bound to their original tale. In the end, while being folkloresque, Slenderman has also arguably ascended into folklore proper. One need not believe the tales of the Brothers Grimm to identify the themes and modify them to fit new social or political contexts. And Slenderman is much the same. Even if few people believe in Slenderman, he's still useful for communicating ideas, fears, and anxieties. Folklorist Michael Coven argues that the lack of genuine belief disqualifies Slenderman as a legend. Coven holds that belief, or at least belief in the possibility, is a necessary component of a legend. But I really doubt that matters. Slenderman, like the story of the Amityville House, provides both a good creepy story and a vocabulary for expressing worries, hopes, and concerns, and as such has become a vital part of modern folklore independent of the question of whether or not anyone actually believes in him. That said, are we so certain that nobody believes? Because so much of the online discussion of Slenderman takes place amongst those who will not admit to his unreality in the forums where they communicate, this is actually difficult to determine. Certainly, the work compiled by folklorist Trevor Blink and Lynn McNeil upon which I drew heavily in writing this episode, strongly indicates that most people who participate in Slenderman storytelling are well aware of his purely fictional nature. Elizabeth Tucker, an expert in children's folklore, has written about pranks played by older siblings, suggesting that at least young children may be open to belief in Slenderman, and at least two adolescent girls committed a crime based on a belief in Slenderman, though there are complicating elements in that matter which will be discussed shortly. But outside of young children who we expect to believe in boogeymen, and one rather strange and arguably marginal case, does anyone actually believe in Slenderman? So this is where the waters get really muddied. It's common to find web posts, online videos, and other created media which claim to be by people who either have genuinely encountered Slenderman, or at least believe that he is real. But because there is a type of kayfabe occurring among those who produce online content regarding Slenderman, it's difficult to tease out whether or not any of these are anything other than play, part of the larger Slenderman make-believe. 
And even among those who seem strongly committed to the idea that Slender Man is real, there is a distinct possibility that it is all a show, albeit at times a convincing one, where people are professing beliefs that they do not actually hold and may even consider a joke. So, as I said earlier, let's just accept that most claims are a knowing fiction, but assume that some small portion, less than 1%, let's say, are from people who genuinely believe in the Slender Man. Some of those who believe would likely take the stories at face value, being unaware of Slender Man's actual origins. They may simply accept that some portion of what they read and see online is true. The previously mentioned folkloresque aspects of Slender Man would feed this, as he does appear more or less like the type of story that has long been told. In addition, some of the artwork created for Slender Man is photoshopped centuries-old artwork modified to show the Slender Man as opposed to whatever mythological or real-world person or creature it had originally displayed. This type of artwork is often accompanied by fictional translations of work from various parts of the world, though most that I have seen indicate Germany, further reinforcing the idea that Slender Man is an entity long known if often hidden. The fake antiquity, the folkloresque quality, and the convincing performances by those producing content could easily persuade someone that either the Slender Man is real or that there is something out there that is sufficiently close to the Slender Man to be mistaken for him. In some other cases, the Slender Man may syncretize with existing belief systems, give a new shape to an old or more recent but still previous belief. Blank and McNeil discuss a set of suicides and attempted suicides among youths living on the Lone Pine Lakota Reservation in South Dakota. In at least one case, over 20 students at the local high school attempted to hang themselves as part of a ritual in the forest. The group's suicide was foiled by teachers and a local member of the clergy who saved the kids. There are, however, other news stories of other successful suicide attempts that have been attributed to belief in the Slender Man. According to Blank and McNeil, the stories of Slender Man appear to have blended with pre-existing beliefs regarding a suicide spirit known by various names including the Tall Man, the Big Man, and Walking Sam. While the actual connection between Slender Man and the attempted suicides is not necessarily clear, the investigating authorities indicated that at least one victim was influenced by a belief in the Slender Man. Although often known primarily for their casinos and other businesses by outsiders, reservation citizens experience significantly higher rates of poverty and associated problems, including mental health troubles, substance abuse, and family strife, than American society overall. It is likely, then, that the suicides and suicide attempts were due not to a spirit, but to the psychological issues and living conditions of those who killed themselves or attempted to kill themselves. Very often, folklore, and specifically supernatural entities within folklore, give us a way to discuss and process events that are difficult or taboo. I cannot say with certainty what happened on the Lakota Reservation. And I'm often skeptical of reporting that lays blame solely at the feet of supernatural beliefs, but it is entirely possible that the belief in a suicide spirit provided a symbolic language through which despair was expressed. It is not out of the question that new symbols, such as Slender Man, could be integrated into that. 
But again, it must be remembered that there is an underlying reality that is at work here. And while belief in the monsters or spirits may or may not be genuine, they are also symptomatic of other more mundane problems. Remember, the truth behind folklore is often metaphorical in nature rather than a physical truth, which allows real issues to be confronted or contained. Blank and McNeil also indicate a number of other violent crimes that either law enforcement or journalists have linked to beliefs in Slenderman. But the examples that they provide and how the connections between the crime and Slenderman are made are far more reminiscent of the crimes falsely attributed to role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons back in the 80s. The law enforcement officer or reporter may have a preconception that a particular interest or belief can make someone more likely to commit crimes. And then they blame such crimes on that thing if they discover that the accused has even a passing familiarity with it. Alternatively, law enforcement officers or journalists may look for a motive for the crime, find something that they themselves don't understand, and begin to suspect that it served as a motive, whether such a belief is actually justified or not. This was common back in the 1980s, with mundane crimes being blamed on the occult, and the examples that Blank and McNeil provide suggest that this scapegoating still occurs. That little visit to the satanic panic of the 80s brings us to another group of people who may honestly believe in the existence of Slenderman. What religious studies scholar Joseph Laycock refers to as moral entrepreneurs. When some social or criminal evil is blamed on a phantom threat, whether that be communists as in the 1950s, Dungeons and Dragons in the 1980s, or as I'm about to get into, internet boogeymen like the Slender Man in the present day, it creates openings for moral entrepreneurs to ply their trade. Moral entrepreneurs are those who take advantage of whatever fear is running rampant to make a name for themselves and sometimes, though not always, make a profit by warning others of the threat, often in fanatical or histrionic ways. Now, it is not necessary for moral entrepreneurs to genuinely believe in the threat that they are warning of. There's ample evidence that Joseph McCarthy and many in his squad back in the 1950s knew that they were lying but it is also not unheard of for them to actually believe. For example, while some of the clergy who warned of the evils of mysticism and Satanism in 80s pop culture and even extending into the 90s with a minor moral panic over Harry Potter can be shown to have been running a scam, quite a few seem to be genuinely quite frightened of what they saw as the horrors of Satan and demons invading everyday life. Indeed, some of those figures remained active and would eventually find themselves falling into the modern QAnon movement, which has repackaged a good deal of the satanic panic in a politically partisan manner. In reading news reports on allegedly Slenderman-related crimes, it was common to see clergy quoted talking about the Slenderman being a demon or some other such supernatural creature, there to prey upon those who had not gotten themselves right with the Lord. At least some of these people are likely unaware of the known fictional nature of Slenderman and actually believe him to be a real demon or malevolent spirit. Others may be aware of the fictional nature, but they've convinced themselves that the demon has chosen to take a shape that better invades the culture. One particular pastor, Robert Swope, has even written a book claiming that Slenderman is not fictional, but is a demonic entity. So, yeah, there is a group that does seem to have some level of actual belief. 
though it is difficult to tease apart those who truly believe as opposed to those who simply see a way to gain notoriety, money, or some other thing from jumping on the Slenderman bandwagon. Finally, there is another phenomenon that I have observed. Those who know of the fictional nature of Slenderman, but who nevertheless insist that he's real, having been brought into being by mass belief and or the strong belief of a few individuals. The basic concept is typically referred to as a tulpa and is said to be a concept from Tibetan Buddhism. More on that in a bit. The people who claim that the Slender Man is a tulpa or a thought form, and from here out I'm going to keep using the term thought form for reasons that'll become clear shortly, accept that the Slender Man was created on the Something Awful forums and that he was initially fictional. But, these folks will say, the widespread belief in Slender Man, coupled with some people really believing in him quite strongly, resulted in the Slender Man becoming a real entity that is really capable of doing those things attributed to him in stories. In fact, because there are so many variations on Slender Man, it is likely that there are multiple thought forms, and he is, as of now, a very real danger in the world. While the word tulpa is a poorly anglicized version of a Tibetan word, the Tibetan word actually means something rather different. The notion of the thought form as something that can be given physical reality through strong and or widespread belief derives from the European tradition of theosophy and not from Tibet. The idea that the notion is Tibetan appears to come from Alexandra David Neal's 1929 book, Magic and Mystery in Tibet, which, while popular in many European and American esoteric circles, is generally considered highly fictionalized by people familiar with Tibet. It appears that David Niels borrowed the idea of the thought form from theosophy, but claimed a Tibetan origin for it and assigned it a roughly Tibetan name because she was writing during a period of time when a lot of people saw Asia generally, and Tibet in particular, as a place of mysterious magical power. Associating a theosophical concept with Tibet seemed to give it a respectability that it lacked in Europe and the Americas. The association with Asia is based on the common racism of the late 19th and early 20th century, in which Asia was held to be a place of mystery and hidden secrets, not like the allegedly rational and advanced West. Of course, after the near destruction of Europe during World War I, we saw just how rational the West was, but I digress. At any rate, the notion of a thought form does have a history in Western esotericism, and it seems only natural that it would eventually be applied to internet lore. And the application of this idea to Slender Man muddies the waters regarding belief even further. Just as most people engaged in a Slender Man storytelling know that he's fictional, I suspect that most of the people who claim that he's a thought form likewise don't believe that the thought form version of Slender Man is real either. The thought form idea gives Slenderman fans even more tools to play with when creating their fiction. You can admit to Slenderman's fictional origins while still insisting that he's real, which creates new textures and ties Slenderman into Western occult traditions. However, the fact that the thought form is part of a long-standing Western occult tradition suggests that some subset of people who say that he is a thought form likely actually believe it. 
but good luck figuring out who the believers are based on online forums where Slenderman largely dwells. Even those who log into spiritualist and theosophical forums to write about Slenderman as a thought form may be trolling the other members. So the short of it is that most people know that Slenderman is fictional. Some people don't, and good luck telling them apart from each other without following the specific statements and actions of specific individuals. And even then, they may or may not be playing a prank. It's messy, but it's also really fascinating. In a very real sense, for all that Slenderman is treated as a new phenomenon, he really brings us back to campfire ghost stories where most people didn't believe. Some, usually children, did and were frightened. But the point was less to tell a convincing tale and more to tell an entertaining story while claiming that it was all true, even if few people actually believed it. And just like the campfire stories, the tellers will often incorporate new elements that they think will give the story that extra punch, while the listeners will often drop on their own experiences while listening. Finally, though, we come to an element of Slenderman lore that is both genuinely frightening and also very open to exploitation. I will do my best to avoid sensationalism, and I will try to be fair and reasonable here. In the spring of 2014, three 12-year-old girls living in Waukesha, Wisconsin, held a sleepover to celebrate a birthday. Two of the girls, Anissa Wire and Morgan Geyser, had a rather intense friendship that had developed a fantasy element based around the Slender Man and likely hinged to a large degree on loneliness and difficulty making friends, especially for Geyser. The third, Peyton Lutner had been friends with Wire for many years and was unaware of anything being amiss. The celebration and sleepover were fairly normal until late the next morning when the three girls went into the woods, allegedly to play hide-and-seek. Wire and Geyser had brought a knife, and they held Lutner down and stabbed her 19 times before leaving her to die in the woods. Lutner managed to crawl out and was discovered by a bicyclist who was able to summon help. Lutner is still alive to this day, and she appears, from what little public information is available, to be doing all right, all things considered. I can't imagine that she doesn't still deal with the psychological fallout, but I'm happy to say that she does appear to be doing better than I believe I would under similar circumstances. Geyser and Wire were arrested while walking along Interstate 94. They were trying to reach Nicolet National Forest, nearly 200 miles away, where they believed that Slenderman had his mansion. They had only traveled around five miles, and, based on descriptions from investigators, seemed not to grasp how far 200 miles was in terms of foot travel. As these two girls were interviewed afterwards, it came out that they had, over the course of time, developed the notion that they could become proxies for Slenderman serving him in the world and living with him in his mansion in the forest. But to do this, they had to sacrifice someone, and they had chosen Lutner. They claimed that once they had formed the plan to become proxies for Slenderman, they feared that failure to follow through would result in Slenderman killing their families. Geyser would eventually be diagnosed with schizophrenia, with which her father had also been previously diagnosed, and it appears that she often hallucinated visits from fictional characters, which she felt to be real people or entities. Wisconsin law required that they be tried as adults, and the investigation and trial proceeded from there. 
Both were found not guilty by reason of insanity. Both girls would be placed within psychiatric facilities after the trial. Wire, who'd been sentenced to 25 years to life with the first three years involuntarily held at a psychiatric facility, was released at the age of 19 with heavy restrictions on movement, limits on internet activity, close monitoring, and requirements that she live with her father and follow a strict mental health regimen. Geyser was sentenced to 40 years to life and was involuntarily held at a psychiatric facility where she remains. A request for release having been withdrawn just the week before I recorded this episode. Lutner's family and much of the community were understandably upset both at the outcome of the trial and at psychiatric care as opposed to criminal punishment and at Ware's release. I imagined I'd feel much the same way if a family member had been subject to an attempted murder and this had been the outcome. However, based on what I've been able to find in researching this episode, I can't help but think that it doesn't seem like the girls were in touch with reality as we know it at the time of the murders. However, they also clearly posed a danger as attested by their actions. I don't know that real justice, fair to everyone involved, was truly possible here. And I think that the outcome is likely as close as could be obtained. In the aftermath of the attempted murder, there was a large number of think pieces, op-eds, and other writing. Much of it was sensationalistic and bent to serve the ends of whoever wrote it, but some of it was thoughtful and well-considered. What we know is that one of the girls, Geyser, is schizophrenic and seemed to genuinely believe that she had actual relationships with fictional characters. So it's not to say if it wasn't Slender Man, she would have fixated on something else. It's to say that she was, in fact, already fixated on other fictional beings in addition to Slender Man. Although initially a lot of writing dismissed the schizophrenia claims as a legal defense maneuver, information on her family history has since come out that indicates that it is, in fact, true. We also know that both of the girls were lonely, very lonely. Wire did have friends, but had changed schools and was increasingly isolated socially. And Geyser appears to have always had a hard time making friends. Adolescence is tough for everyone, but I can say from experience that actually being the outsider, not simply feeling like the outsider, which most adolescents do, but genuinely being actively excluded and shunned is extraordinarily painful, and you will accept a lot that might otherwise seem like deal breakers in order to have a friend. I don't know that many people actually experience that sort of isolation at that age, but I did, and it is devastating. So when two junior high age girls are both isolated and seem to be on the same page regarding their interests, it isn't that much of a stretch to think that it can create a dependency where their shared interests gain an outsized importance and where their friendship may seem more important than other pro-social concerns. Wire did have friends, aside from Geyser. But from the information available from the trial, it does appear to be the case that these two were increasingly drawn into their own world. Now, I want to be very careful. It could easily come across that schizophrenia is the cause of the violence, but that doesn't appear to quite be the case. Geyser was not a cinematic psycho out to do harm because of her mental illness. Indeed, it is likely that the odd behavior due to her mental illness was a factor in her being isolated, and that same isolation would have made her more likely to be a victim of a violent crime than the perpetrator, 
as is often the case for people living with schizophrenia. Schizophrenia wasn't the cause. Rather, it looks as if the combination of social isolation, loneliness, and increasingly important friendship that was also increasingly divorced from the outside world, the ability to share or shift blame for any wrong done as there is someone else involved, and a fixation on a fictional monster aided through hallucinations on the part of one of the girls, all mixed together in a toxic brew. If any one of these ingredients had been missing, and especially if social isolation had not been a factor and these two had been receiving outside input, then it is likely that the stabbing would not have happened. Joseph Laycock describes the event as an example of corrupted play, a place where normal human imaginative play got out of control due to a combination of many factors resulting in consequences that would have been unthinkable prior to them actually occurring. Unfortunately, much of the writing and filmmaking that I've come across seems more interested in advancing simpler explanations. For many, this serves simply to spark a moral panic about creepypasta, ignoring the context in which the two girls who attempted the murder were living. For others, this was simply a sign of the dangers of allowing children to go on the internet, with the assumption, largely disproven through psychological and folkloric research, that children can't tell fiction from reality. This, again, ignores the social context as well as the fact that Geyser is a special case due to her hallucinations and delusions. For others, this was a sign of how dangerous the mentally ill are, which, again, ignores that while Geyser's hallucinations and delusions do appear to have been a factor, they wouldn't have been at all dangerous without a larger interpersonal and social context in which everything played out. Had someone been able to see what the girls were planning or even been willing and able to intervene in their isolation, this likely would have been prevented before violence was even a possibility. It is, however, hard to see how that would have happened. As Coven notes, though, the attempted murder became part of the legend of Slender Man. Even those who don't believe in Slender Man now know that the story was part of a real violent crime. In Irene Taylor Brodsky's film, Beware the Slender Man, these various factors are considered. While Brodsky seems, based on her camera work and visual storytelling, to favor the view that it is internet access and things posted online that are ultimately to blame, even going into information on the girl's search history that, frankly, often seems like the sort of things that many adolescents look up specifically to seem shocking or edgy, to her credit, she does provide ample discussion of the psychological, medical, and social factors also at play. One of the more fascinating yet disturbing aspects of the film is that, at the end, we see fan art made showing Geyser and Wire as beloved proxies of their friend, Slender Man. Regardless of Slender Man's non-reality, these two have now been thoroughly woven into the narrative and are treated, at least by some people, as heroes in the Slender Man legendarium. It's not unheard of for violent crimes to earn someone heroic status. Lore of the Old West is filled with that, but this feels different, as if the crime itself is being celebrated. What we learn from Slender Man is that a story being known as fiction does not prevent it from becoming folklore, and that folklore can encompass a wide range of elements, whether genuinely believed or not. Slender Man also shows that the lines between belief and a joke can be easily blurred, especially online. But the fact that this is clear with an online story doesn't mean that similar blurring cannot occur offline as well. Again, 
look at the phenomenon of kayfabe among wrestling fans. Finally, we see that elements of real-life tragedy can and will be incorporated into folklore that can defy ethics and good taste. Slenderman is an excellent case study in contemporary folklore, if at times an unnerving one. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!